millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. We've been through a tough couple of years. Pressures are real. The fuel price increases are real. Women are so deeply aggrieved and angry. You have to think about this as a father first. And if that doesn't make you angry, you are not paying attention. It is his way or the highway. I know our country can do better. He was an intimidating bully. A menacing, controlling wallpaper. Such marches, even now, are being met with bullets. We still have so much work to do. Call the election. Call it now. What am I doing right now? Let the people of Australia decide. Jenny has a way of clarifying things. Let's make some noise, Australia! Hello and welcome to Episode 5 of this special election series of Broad Talk. I'm Jill Marsh, a long-time listener of Broad Talk. You can usually find me working in a museum or gallery somewhere in the world. I'm very much looking forward to talking to the stellar lineup of guest commentators on today's panel. We have Helen Daly Fisher and Sally Moyle with us today. You've met them both on previous episodes, and I'll introduce you to them again in just a moment. I should mention I'm here with you today because Virginia is out of the country and you will know where in the world Virginia is if you've been following Broad Talk on Facebook and Broad Talkers on Instagram. There has never been a better time to connect with Martin and Virginia there or on Twitter at TalkBroad and email using the address hello at broadtalk.net. Podcast series like Broad Talk are really all about connecting with listeners. That's you. So if you enjoy Broad Talk, please forward it to a friend or to all of your friends, as indeed I have. And if you can spare a moment to rate and review the series, it all helps connect more people to it. It's been an interesting week on the campaign trail, but there's also a deafening silence on issues that aren't being discussed in the lead up to the election. And that's one of the many things we'll talk about. 
First up joining us today, it's a delight to welcome Sally Moyle as she joins the conversation. Sally Moyle is an Honorary Associate Professor at the ANU's Gender Institute and Vice President of the National Foundation for Australian Women. Sally, what's the issue you're surprised you haven't heard more discussion about during the election campaign this week? Well, there's lots of them. I mean, I'm, re- I'm actually really pleased to hear that Al- Anthony Albanese is bringing up gender issues quite often. That's a really heartening for me to hear that they're putting their money where their mouth is. But there's lots of issues that we're overlooking. But one of the prime ones, of course, is COVID. Nobody's even mentioning it. But the one that I think we need to talk about is what's happening in the US in the context of Roe against Wade, the abortion rights case from the 1970s that established in the US a right to abortion up to 25 weeks. And that's now under threat in the US. So that's something that I think needs to be discussed more. It's kind of come up a little bit, but it needs further attention because it's really scary for women everywhere. That is a burning issue. And there's someone that's about to join us, Helen Daly Fisher, who is having her own journey with COVID right now. Um, But I'm (laughs) sure she'll have a lot to say about Roe against Wade when we get into the discussion shortly too. Helen is the convener of the Equality Rights Alliance based in Canberra. ERA is Australia's largest network of organisations advocating for women's equality and leadership. Before ERA, Helen trained in law and worked in the community legal sector, where she specialised in disability discrimination. Helen, welcome back, fresh from episode four of this Broad Talk election series. What's been the election issue that's really caught your eye this week? Well, it's been really useful, I think, for us to finally see the conversation about cost of living move on to some of the real drivers um, of the issues around cost of living. Seeing a conversation around minimum wage is something that's critical for women in particular. You've got much more women on minimum wage than you do men. And finally seeing some real um, detailed analysis um, coming out from parties about what should actually be done about that. But then the the level of response to um, the Labor Party's proposal. It's funny because it's not even a proposal. Um, Albanese's response to a question about whether he would raise minimum wages or whether he would advocate the raising is deeply interesting to watch the response to it from a government that is implementing tax cuts for people on high incomes. Um, Inflationary pressures are something that we all need to be worried about at the moment, but the effect of tax cuts for people with large discretionary incomes um, is going to be far more inflationary than minimum wages. And so seeing that debate start to finally roll out, I think, has started to really put a focus on what each of the party means when they talk about what good economic management is. So that's been really interesting. It has been interesting and it's definitely taking off in the discussions this week in the election trail campaign. But this week, while the world grapples with the ongoing war in the Ukraine and the ongoing turbulence of a global pandemic... We also saw a leaked judgment that indicates the US Supreme Court intends to overturn Roe against Wade in the near future. That will mean the end of a decision that has survived 49 years of hostile legal challenges. And as Prudence Flowers, senior lecturer at Flinders University, wrote in the conversation, it reminds us all that rights must be continually defended, never taken for granted. This comes at a time when Australia's Assistant Minister for Women, Senator Amanda Stoker, attended an anti-abortion rally and the Prime Minister has been reported to say he didn't have a problem with her attendance because it's a free country. Sally, 
Uh, you touched on it earlier, but what do you make of this? How have attitudes changed here over time? Is there appropriate access to abortion in Australia? Should this be an election issue? Uh, look, I think it's really, it's, it is scary. While the rights are always at risk, uh, it, what happens in the US inevitably follows through to Australia. And we're seeing abortion and women's rights to their own bodies are, are becoming a real political football. They always have been, but now it's at risk. Uh, and so it's it is really scary, and we're really seeing the um, discussion come out of the woodwork there now. Increasingly in Australia, we see that parts of our right wing adopt and pick up and follow the US right wing with increasing alacrity. There's not any lag at all anymore. And so Amanda Stokers and you know George Christensen, Matt Canavan, and others attending that anti-abortion rally. Um, was a real sign that they are willing to put this into play and to to use women's bodies as a political um, football. And it's it's scary. It's medieval. I mean, that we have to have a conversation that being forced to carry to term a pregnancy from someone that raped you is an outrageous thing in the 21st century. It feels like we're going back to medieval times and it's really scary. I mean, Australia's only just finished decriminalising abortion in 2019 to 2021, you know. I mean, it was only just happening and we are only just overcoming the fact that in Tasmania there was very little access to surgical abortion for a long time. Uh, people had to travel out of state to get an abortion. So that's, I think, you know, in Australia we're only just nailing down the right to abortion um, only to see it being immediately starting to be wound back and it scares the crap out of me, actually. Yeah, can I jump in there? Because I think that that's, that's a really critical point, Sally, that we haven't managed to pin down the right in Australia because we've still got this massive taboo about talking about abortion. I mean, we don't have the stories. Um, we've had some very brave women who have taken that taboo on and have you know, sort of offered their own stories to the public, which has a massive effect on being able to have this conversation. But for the most part, that taboo is still firmly in place. And that makes us really vulnerable to having rights wound back, I think, if we're not in a position where people feel like they can even talk about it. And I think mm. this is all happening in a, in a broader context of rights being wound back more generally. So we saw that with the religious discrimination bill debate at the end of last mm. year. There is no question that relig the right to freedom of thought, conscience and belief should be legislated in Australia. We signed up for it 50 years ago. It's about time we did something about it. But that particular debate was characterised by a real sense that the way that bill had been drafted in a way to wind back the rights available to women under the Sex Discrimination Act was seen as not important. That wasn't something that we needed to worry about too much. And in that context, to then have to have a debate about whether or not we should be winding back rights to abortion, it worries me a lot because I think we are in, a, in an environment where people think that things that happen to women, um, winding back women's rights is not as important as other factors that are in play. Women are just not quite, we're a siloed issue off to one side, easily sacrificed. That bothers me. Can I just say, I think that our leaders think that, that they can sacrifice women's rights, but I do think that broadly the public uh, doesn't agree with that. And like in the US, where something like 70% of people support a woman's right to abortion, generally speaking, most people go, nah, we don't want to argue about this. Nobody likes abortion, but if you have to have one, it's your choice. I mean, I think most of the broad Australian public would agree with that approach. And likewise, most people are just a bit baffled about why we're having this religious discrimination discussion when it's not an issue that touches the sides in their lives at all. But of course, we've got a parliament in Australia. 
um, particularly the, the Liberal National Parties, that are far more right-wing than the average Australian and they're having these conversations that matter to them but don't seem to matter to anybody else. And we'll see whether that's the case, I guess, as we approach the election now. We'll see if people are buying these conversations or if they're just baffled by why we're even talking about them. I'm really fascinated to see what happens in the election. I am too. I mean, do you both ultimately think that repealing Roe against Wade in the United States will affect opinions or policy on abortion in Australia? Uh, Are we jumping the gun? Is this going to have a a global ripple effect that will give anti-abortion voices kind of almost the impetus to step up their campaigns and try and erode rights? I think both. Yeah, yes, it will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think both. Go, Sally, you go first. Thank you, Helen. I think um, it'll do both. It will absolutely strengthen the arm of the uh, the people who wish to wind back women's rights and to use abortion as a political tool. Um, but it will also clearly dem- start demonstrating in the US the effects of withdrawing women's rights to their own bodies. And we will see these stories emerging about women dying from botched abortions or being forced to carry ectopic pregnancies till their deaths, you know. I mean, these sorts of things are what we will see in the US and I think that we will begin to see that women's rights organisations and women themselves and those who care about women will start strengthening their arms again and it might end up backfiring badly on the anti-abortionists and the pro-forced birth crews and that we might see, you know, the right to abortion further entrenched in Australia before it gets too far. Oh, that's what I've got my fingers crossed about. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a possibility. The the thing to set against that is the massive amount of money there is behind the anti-abortion groups, mm-hmm. um, and that's the the bit that you know really chills me is that when I go mm-hmm. to the Commission on the Status of Women in New York each year, the groups that turn up there to talk about abortion, to oppose abortion, to oppose even language about women's human rights in the the agreed conclusions of um, that commission are so well-funded and so well-resourced. They fund whole buses that are printed with their anti-abortion messages to sit sit outside the UN for the the two-week period of the meeting while they rack up fine after fine because they're not supposed to leave a um, bus in front of the UN. But they don't care because they've got huge amounts of money. Um, And we've been seeing very well-organised, very well-funded opposition to women's human rights developing in Australia. And that is something that I think we need to be actively aware of and actively opposing. And Sally, I think you're right. I think that if we can mobilise Australians to talk about this issue and get past that taboo, then we are in a position where most Australians go, yeah, look, you know what? I'm not not you know sort of massively interested in the issue, but also I don't see any reason why this should be banned. That seems to be the dominant attitude. So, But we have to have that conversation, I think. We have to we have to get politicians past that fear that the noisy minority um, who are so well-funded and so well-organised um, actually represent a real voice in Australia. And we have to have the sensible majority wishing, willing to vote on it too, right? If people just yeah. go, oh, God, this is annoying and I'm walking away from it, then then that, that vocal minority will succeed. We've got to get people voting for this stuff. So should this be an election issue? Is this something we should be talking about right now or is this just something we need to have a vigilant watch on to make sure that it doesn't kind of head down that path of trying to gradually erode rights over time, which seems to be what the approach has been in the United States? Should it be an election issue generally? Yes. Should it be an election issue 10 days out from the election? Maybe not. 
Um, because I've, what would worry me at this point is that we would get a very unnuanced conversation. We've seen the conversation about trans women, which is not just unnuanced but offensively, I want to say impertinent, but it goes a lot further than that. It's actually belligerent. Um, and that that conversation, I think, shows us that we don't have the political discourse right now um, in this election campaign to be able to adequately handle an issue like abortion. When you come down to it, the issue about abortion is a really simple one. Um, I want to sum it up with the word hemorrhoids. You know, no bloke would put another bloke through a process that requires them um, probably to come out with hemorrhoids. And, you know, it's it's not a complex concept, the idea that you should be able to control whether or not you go through a pregnancy. But the problem is that there are so many layers of cultural control, cultural taboos sitting over the top of this that we would need to dig through those and get some really clear messaging. And I don't see that. We can't even get clear messaging about raising um, the minimum wage um, at the moment. And so I don't see that right now we'd be able to, to properly run this as an election issue. Helen, I think that gives us a perfect segue to talk, and I don't know whether it was the mention of hemorrhoids, but um, (laughs) it may have been easy for people to miss. There were two leadership debates on Sunday and Wednesday night. Uh, Horrendous and schmozzle are some of the words that have been used to describe the second leader's debate on Sunday, with Wednesday night's debate recapping many of the same issues. But thankfully, without that awful moment on Sunday where both leaders were asked to define a woman, Mm -hmm. Uh, despite a moment where childcare had a fleeting mention, um, there wasn't a lot of airtime on issues that affect women in either of those last two debates. In fact, there seemed to be a lot of effort going into not saying the W word at all. Sally, do these televised debates have any impact? Uh, will the effects of the past year affect votes this election? Look, I, I, I must admit I haven't watched any of those televised debates. I've watched bits of them later on uh, afterwards, but uh, I didn't, and I, I understand that less than 200,000 people watched the original Sky debate, leaders' debate, 100,000, you know, back in 2007, 2.4 million people were watching those televised debate on mainstream television. It's just clearly not seen as that relevant and people are disengaged from, I think, from this presidential-style argy-bargy. Interestingly, that first question uh, in the second debate about what's the definition of a woman was a was a trick gotcha question to get um, the leaders on a trans issue, actually. I mean, it reflects that the conversation that... Um, uh, in in the uh, Supreme Court um, approval process for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson in the US, she was asked, what's the definition of a woman? And she sort of said, I can't, I can't tell you, I don't know, I haven't got it in front of me, I'm not a biologist. And it caused this giant ruckus in the US. And it was a direct take from the US approach to try and get a gotcha moment on our Australian leaders. Um, and they both just sidestepped it by talking specifically about cis women rather than engaging on the trans issue at all. So it was it was quite a sad question, I thought, a sad gotcha question, and it just demonstrates to me how those debates and how the public discourse generally isn't up to scratch. It is really interesting how the viewing numbers have crashed on those debates, isn't it? Um, mm. And 
the fact that the ABC um, hasn't been allowed to run one, I think, is really interesting. Um, and I think that the, the third one that we saw the other, last night was a, a really well-structured approach to the, abate, the, to the debate that I think we haven't sort of been seeing up until now. In particular, that final question, which was a question designed to move everybody away from their talking points and to actually reveal some character. Um, so the question being, you know, what, what, um, what do you – admire about your opponent. And I think that, that that question encapsulates what it is we actually want to see and get out of debates, is that we want to be able to assess the people. Um, we want to be able to assess their ideas. We want to be able to assess their underlying ideologies. And we want to be to get a clear idea of what we can expect if that person gets elected into power. And I don't actually think we got that until we got to that final question. And that was a, a really interesting, well well-placed question, I thought. Mm -hmm. But it does make me, you know, it, it, I think you're right, Sally, that we're not getting the nuanced debates. It's the same as with the abortion issue. Um, yeah, I don't think that we can have debates about nuanced issues like gender, um, the difference between sex and gender and uh, you know, the things things that we need to talk about in relation to lived experience of being a woman. We can't do that in a format where people are looking for gotcha moments. Um, yeah. We're in a place where that presidential style of um, American political discourse is is dumbing down our ability to be able to talk about quite complex issues. And in fact, we and actually want you... them to. Sorry, sorry, Jill, just to say that we actually want them to keep away from those nuanced issues, so that they're not backed into the corner of making a simplistic answer that then ruins our chance to get out of that corner forever after. So we actually don't want them to go to some of those questions. I think. And Helen, what did you make of the two debates, or the optics of the two aging white men softly shouting at each other in the debates and and talking talking over the female moderator? Like, tell me your thoughts and feelings on that for a moment. Look, as, as somebody who works. Um, in the area of gender policy, there was a moment when I was looking at the, the debate on Sunday where I thought, look, what we need to do is take screen grabs from this and we need to take quotes from it. And then when we have a new government and we start to talk about implementing Kate Jenkinson's uh, setting the standards report around culture in parliament, we just play this. You know, because it was a perfect encapsulation about what is wrong in Parliament at the moment um, and what is wrong with our parliamentary system. We're consistently seeing um, from the electorate people saying that they are disenchanted with the parties, they're disenchanted with the system, they don't like the way the current system is working. And the, the fact that the debates are losing audiences, that we've got the, the terrible optics of two blokes slanging at each other rather than engaging with each other's ideas and then saying, you know what, I disagree with you for these reasons. There's no sense that there's been any development um, in the way parties operate, in the way um, parliament operates, in the way our political structures operate. We need a movement. Um, the electorate is calling for a movement away from those sort of very antagonistic ways of dealing um, with politics. And yet the, the debates just showed us that it's so entrenched they are unable um, to move out of that format. Mm, I think uh, very valid um, and astute observations. We're going to take a very short break. So stay where you are. We'll be back with you shortly. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. 
I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. This week, we've heard the Prime Minister say in the most recent leadership debate that independent candidates would weaken Parliament and Australia. The Deputy Prime Minister made similar comments in a National Press Club appearance this week, and things turned a little ugly as independent challenger for the seat of Kuyong, Monique Ryan, accused Treasurer Josh Frydenberg of misquoting her mother-in-law to attempt to embarrass the Teal candidate. Sally, are these types of comments fair in the game of politics? Uh, does this affect other women's political aspirations? Uh, look, I do. I don't think that that kind of thing's really that fair. I mean, there's nothing stopping Josh Frydenberg from saying making that kind of comment, but it just turns a lot of people off, and it's undignified, and it's not really that fair. So I reckon just skip it. And it just was a demonstration to me that he was kind of feeling a bit desperate, and clearly is feeling a bit desperate for his seat. And it just demonstrates how those so-called teal independents, but a range of other independents as well, are really challenging the status quo of our leadership and our policy and our politics in Australia and and so much for the better, I think. It's, it's really interesting seeing those Liberal elders squealing about how this is unfair and how women shouldn't be independents and they should be, you know, making me cups of tea at my fundraising events. And it, it's, really, it's really illustrative of where we're at in Australia politics. And I just hope that most Australian women see that what is happening here is that they're being dismissed again. It's almost like a coercive control approach. Um, and that we we use our votes effectively in this election. Helen, the PM and Deputy PM have been keen to emphasise that a vote for independence is a, a risk. Um, do you think that that message is um, penetrating or getting through in the way that they would like it to? I, I think that's a really interesting indication that um, they are genuinely threatened by the Teal candidates. And I think threatened more than just electorally. The thing that really stands out for me in this is that this is a pattern that we hear so often. When I talk to women who have raised questions about harassment in the workplace, or when I talk to women who have run discrimination cases um, on the basis of gender, the key things that you hear in every case is, they said I would rock the boat, and that I would upset everything, that if I continued doing what I was doing, I would make life harder for everybody. That if I, um, that the fact that I was doing this must somehow um, reflect that I'm a bad person. Um, and that takes different forms. If it's a sexual harassment case, then um, that there'll be a sexual overtone to that, uh, impugning someone's character. Um, you know, you're a slut, you're a, um, you, you're um, flirting, you're, you know, that sort of stuff, those personal attacks. And we're seeing the, the first stages 
of that process emerging here. So we're seeing the teal candidates being branded as troublemakers, as people who will bust the system as people who will cause um, unnecessary trouble for other people. And that's that's the beginning of the same process we see every time male power is attacked. And I, I just think it's hilarious the way the pat- same pattern keeps um, re-emerging. They're hilarious and deeply depressing. And mm. so it, I think it's an indication that they've done the that the Teal candidates are really making an impact, that they are highlighting a deep problem with uh, the, the current structures in the same way that, for example, we've been seeing with the debates and so on. We're seeing that people are not happy uh, with the current structures and the Teal candidates are offering a genuine alternative. And mm. what's fascinating about it is the fear about a, a hung parliament or a parliament that is somehow dominated by the Teal candidates because ultimately a parliament like that would require negotiation. It would require um, working together. Um, it might require a parliament where everybody has a voice and you may be looking for people to, to work with you. And that's a completely different way of doing parliamentary politics from what we've got at the moment. And they're genuinely frightened about it. And I think that's fascinating when you think about the changes we're trying to make to a, a parliament where we may actually see people having to throw out the old ways of doing things and talk to um, other parliamentarians, work with them. That would be a real sea change. And so for me, I actually think a hung parliament might be a really interesting environment. Sally, I'd love to get your thoughts. Yes. Can I just say, in addition to calling the teal, so-called teal independents, you know, bad women or rocking the boat, they're also calling them puppets, of course, by saying that they're all, you know, funded by Simon Holmes Accord and they're all dancing to his tune. Um, you know, I mean, it's, you, you can't have it both ways, guys. And uh, it just demonstrates again that they're flailing around looking for responses to the to the um, clear success of these people. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the electoral system. We don't know if any of them will succeed. It's going. It's clearly an uphill battle. But if, if what they're doing is rocking the boat sufficiently so that there might be some room for, for the traditional parliaments to reflect on themselves and their approaches and to look at how the way they're responding to this, which is so desperate and so unimpressive, then maybe there's room to move. But uh, frankly, I, I'm hoping that there is a real scare given to the traditional parliament um, approach. I mean, I look back at that hung parliament that we had, the minority government that Julia Gillard managed, and it was a, clearly a successful technical government. It passed more legislation um, than uh, other other parliaments did, certainly more than the Abbott government got passed and following it. And I, I think that we've just got to look at the fact that having a, a a strong legislature is an important piece for delivering for the mainstream Australian community. And interesting too that people are seeing um, someone representing their electorate and, you know, which which is what the whole kind of system was founded on, would be seen as a, a threat to um, to Australia and to Parliament. It's very fascinating times. And it's, it's just one uh, more thing. Sorry, Jill, it's really interesting to see that um, people are saying, well, if we lose this generation of future leaders of the Liberal Party's all male, of course, um, then we're only going to be seeing the coalition move further right. And I kind of go, well, good luck to you then. See how you go electorally if you're, you know, a parliament, if you're a party made up of the far right that is reflecting so badly on Australia at the moment and putting us in such peril around climate change and other issues. Good luck to you if you think that you can be elected. Um, face it, deal with it. I feel like we could talk about this one mm. all day, but um, there is something else I'd love to get your thoughts on, both of you. Plan International Australia's Represent Us report has stated that just 10% of young female first-time voters believe that parliament is safe. 
Three quarters do not believe that parliament is an inclusive and equal space for women and diverse groups. And 90% believe that men are treated better in politics. Helen, why are young women feeling this way? Are we at risk of losing capable female leaders of the future? Well, they feel this way because they're right. Uh, That's one of the things I think is really interesting about talking to young women about politics in particular, but about gender policy generally, is that they haven't yet learned and internalised all of the rules Um, They haven't yet got to the point where they are used to the way things are and they can see alternatives. And so you've got young women looking at parliament and seeing behaviour that they simply wouldn't condone in their own social circles. And they are looking at systems which collude to prevent women from being engaged. Now, you talk to – I remember being at a panel once where the then Minister for Women, Michaela Cash, was sitting on a panel of international speakers talking about the barriers to women in leadership. And Michaela Cash began her speech with, I haven't faced any barriers. Um, which showed to me a spectacular lack of understanding of the way privilege works. And the thing about um, young women is that they have a very keen understanding of privilege. And so I I think that what we're getting from that Plan International report is a very clear-eyed view about the way Parliament is. And we are seriously at risk of losing a generation of leaders as a result of that. Um, Not just in Parliament, I think in business as well. Uh, We're seeing similar observations from young women about the way business operates, particularly um, young women who are looking at the next 10, 15 years of having children, um, who can see that it's simply not feasible for them to both engage in parenting the way they want to and yet also move into leadership positions in business. And that these are cultural issues. There are no technical reasons why you can't run a corporation or a parliament in a way that allows people to actually um, live their lives and also be safe. These are cultural issues that we need to address. And it, it fills me with great hope that young women are pointing this out um, because I know that the Plan International work is done with the engagement um, of a great number of young women um, and they're often involved in driving the work um, of Plan. And so seeing that young women are making this point gives me hope that um, you know, the work may actually be done. But when you put the attitudes of the young women towards politics alongside the reaction to the teal candidates, um, I think it shows us that we have a long way to go um, on addressing the issues that we have in Parliament. Mm-hmm. And just from my point of view, I think that's quite right. I mean, we've seen young women saying this all the way through, you know, it's always the way. We see this again and again. We get, you know, new reports like we've seen just very recently the Chief Executive Women Report done in conjunction with um, Impact Economics that says that women are an untapped resource, that we need to get more women into the workforce, that it would help to fill the gaps that we're going to be facing by 20. 30 around the need to grow our workforce. And it worries me that we we keep on demonstrating the business case for gender equality and for engaging women, but nobody recognises that what is the system is, is throwing women out again, you know, and that's why we haven't over the last 40 years since I've been out of school um, we haven't seen things that change as much as we should have because we haven't been willing to change those structures. And it worries me again that the new um, Chief Executive Women Report will will lead people to see women's workforce participation and engagement in leadership as a purely transactional thing where we can force women into those roles um, that don't serve them, you know, where women are already suffering in terms of their mental health from the, the stress that they face in balancing their work and, and family lives. 
Um, and if we continue to force women into this situation where we're forcing them to do it rather than giving them options and opportunities that are well paid and well balanced, then we will continue to see women suffer, women's health, women's mental health. Um, and we will continue to see well-educated women just walking away because it's a bad joke for them. They just cannot cope with this. So um, part of it is the structures of our workforces and the cultures of our workforces that are toxic, and part of it is the unwillingness or inability of men, their partners, to step into the roles of carers and to help take some of that burden off. So this is a continuing question, and I'm, you know, getting to the age where I'm pretty cranky about the whole thing, and I think that we need to do something. We're getting to the stage where we really need to rethink this systemically. Should we expand our conversation about targets and quotas to ensure there are more voices in politics and other leadership roles that reflect the true diversity of Australia or is it about culture? That's a that's a discussion that we're currently having at ERA about whether or not um, to advocate for hard ta- um, hard quotas in parliament. And yeah, my personal view is yes, absolutely. But you can't do quotas if the barriers are still there. And that's exactly what Sally's talking about. Mm. You end up scratching around to find women who are prepared to, to put their hand up and um, take the quota, uh, fill the quota. But the, the result is that they end up leaving, they end up uh, walking away because it's just so toxic. And so if there's no structural change and no um, cultural change, the targets themselves won't actually achieve what's important underneath quotas, which is that there is cultural change and there is ongoing increased input from a greater variety of people into our legislative processes. And I think it's important to note at this point that this isn't just about gender either. Race, ethnic background, disability, you know, you name it, we, we need to see a greater level of diversity across the board um, in our parliament. And one of the things that frustrates me is when you get quotas, you get the women who fill the gender quotas. And that's why they're there. And if you then add diversity to those quotas, you get the women of colour who fill both quotas. <laughs> and so there's never any suggestion that the white men um, should walk away or that they should be making room for other people. And that seeding of power, I think, is a critical step that we need to start seeing. Will that predicted rise of the teal independence help or hinder that process, do you think? Well, for me, I think the idea is, right, that if you bring enough women or enough diversity into the pool, that they will automatically or by osmosis change the culture sufficiently so that those barriers are removed and you do create a more welcoming culture. And that's debatable. I mean, I, th- I think that ultimately the quest- the answer is that we've not seen that change happen without uh, hard quotas. You know, you force the first group of sacrificial women into those roles who do it really tough and then the idea is that they do change those cultures. I mean, I think that we're seeing in Australia some demonstration of that. We're not seeing the same level of toxicity in, in the ALP where women were forced into through, through a quota into those winnable seats. Um, and we ask, it, so it may be that uh, that there is a more welcoming and accepting and diverse culture there now, but it may not be either. I mean, there's been lots of cases where, as um, Helen said, you women are, were, uh, 
induced to move into those roles and the culture just doesn't change and it's toxic for the women and so the whole thing fails. So I think you've got to do both. You've got to have You've got to have those targets in or those quotas in place and then you've got to do the work to change the culture so that it does become more welcoming. What would you tell young women who are voting for the first time, like thinking about who they're going to be putting in as their representative when there's that opportunity to potentially vote for candidates that might represent them? Like what are your thoughts on that? Oh, look, I think I think we've got to treat this as any... To tell young people this is actually important. It doesn't seem like it's that important. Your vote may feel like it doesn't count, um, but it does count and your engagement is important and your opinion does matter. Um, I think that it's it's really important that we that we grow a young a cohort of young people who are engaged in politics and who are making those considered decisions and requiring their elected representatives to respond to the issues that they raise. Yeah, and I'd, I'd just like to add to that. Um, I think when you say your opinion matters, I think also what happens to you matters. I think young people need to be told that it's okay to vote in your interests because a lot of women in particular, a lot of young women, vote for what would be good for everyone, what would be good for the community, what would be good for family. We're, we're um, trained, socialised to behave in that way. And there is, it is actually essential that young women vote in their own interests because, frankly, no one else is. Very well said indeed. One of the issues that uh, is being uh, raised that doesn't seem to have an obvious gender lens on it, but I'm keen to get your thoughts, is around climate targets. Climate targets of the major parties had some attention this week, and while Labor's emissions targets are stronger than the coalition's, both are falling short of having a potential impact on reducing extreme heat events and saving the Great Barrier Reef from destruction. Helen, is there a gender lens that we can put on this discussion and, and debate? Totally. Um, climate change is really, really interesting when you start to consider the impacts on people. When we talk about climate, a lot of the time we're talking about physical impacts. We're talking about the effect on weather. We're talking about the effect on food production, that sort of thing. We don't do as much talking about the way it's going to affect people. We do hear it from health professionals who are very good on this, but we don't hear it um, very much in terms of talking about infrastructure, about um, how people's lives are actually going to be affected. And I think that's why the 2019-20 bushfires and um, the current flood crisis, and I call it a current crisis because it is still a crisis, rain is still falling and you know, the people who were affected a couple of months ago are still in deep crisis. Talking about the effect on people's lives, I think, is absolutely critical and nobody's doing that particularly well at the moment. And one of the things that bothers me about that is that women are economically and socially more vulnerable. Um, in our community, the way we're set up at the moment. And so, you know, women make up um, most of the people on low incomes in our community. They are more likely to be caring for um, vulnerable people. They are more likely to have a disability themselves. They are particularly um, at risk of gendered violence. And so there are all these um, issues that start to emerge. It, it, climate change is the great amplifier of disadvantage. And so there's this real gender lens that needs to go on um, climate policy. But when just not seeing, we're not even seeing um, people talking about the way climate change is going to affect people, let alone the way it'll t affect women. And I mean, there's a perfect example of that from the budget before last when um, the government did a really good thing. They funded an analysis of the effects of climate change policy in Australia on women. 
but they funded it to a different department, to the department that was working on the policy on climate change. And so there was this massive sort of siloing of women's issues off to one side um, with Department of um, Social Services looking at how will climate change affect women, but other departments looking at what we will do about climate. And that's an ongoing pattern that we've got. We don't do a good job of talking about how um, climate change is going to affect people. And we do a particularly bad job of talking about how it'll affect women. Mm -hmm. And can I just say, you're quite right, Helen, in saying that any crisis exacerbates inequalities. That's the nature of them. Uh, And as we become more familiar and as crises become more common, that climate-driven crises become more common, we will see an exacerbation of gender inequalities. And we will also see that climate change affects men in really difficult ways as well, of course, right? Already we see men are the ones that suffer greater levels of fatality in any disaster. There's lots of reasons for that, um, but they do. It's a, it's a, it's um, most of the time in Australia, men suffer more greater fatalities in crises, and we'll see that continuing. I mean, it's not the case necessarily overseas, and so the Boxing Day tsunami back in the early 2000s saw 90% of the fatalities were female. 90% of the people who died were women because they were the ones that were stuck inside, had to collect the kids to run, uh, couldn't, weren't taught to swim, hadn't been taught to climb trees. These things killed women. But in Australia, quite often, it's men who are the ones that are dying from from bushfires and floods. And it's something that we need to be aware of. We need to be aware that as we become more used to crises, we'll see gender inequalities exacerbated and gaps widening. Totally. Feminism is good for men. (laughs) (laughs) That that feels like a very appropriate place for us to to finish. (laughs) Uh, Thank you both um, for your time and very thoughtful contributions. I hope it's provided inspiration for listeners to pay attention to what isn't being said as much as what has been in this campaign. With many voters yet to make up their minds, things are about to hot up on the campaign trail, so please do join Virginia when she's back in the chair next week. And if you have something to say about some of the topics we touched on today or perhaps the ones we didn't, let us know what you think on Broad Talkers on Insta, at Broad Talk, at Talk Broad on Twitter and Broad Talk on Facebook or email hello at broadtalk.net and keep talking. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.